Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. Okay, if you don't have notes, they're the same that were passed around last week. Um, Do we need any more? Anybody need notes? You got some, there's, there's copy right there, so. Very good. Okay, we're going to take it from the top very briefly. <clears throat> we only got through the first couple of verses last week, verses 1 and 2 of uh, the book of Hebrews. So I, I just want to pick it up at the, at, the, at the very top, and the opening paragraph that I wrote kind of as an introduction to what we're looking at. These first four verses of chapter 2 brings us the first warning passage in this book. There are a number of warning passages in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10, and chapter 12. So we have five warning passages. The focus of the book is to the, to the Hebrews, or to the Jewish people. And there are two groups that are in view. Those who actually know the Lord, or we refer to them as those possessing Jewish believers. In other words, they truly possess the Lord. But then you have another group who are professing Jewish believers. With their mouth, they will claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, but they have never truly accepted him as their Lord and Savior. So they're just, even though they're, they profess to be believers, they're, they're only professing. They're not possessing. And we'll see this at different times as we go through the book with us and them, us and them. We are not like them, and, and so on. Well, the warning passages are addressed to these professing Jewish believers who are considering going back to uh, the old way, the old traditions, the old religion, which at that time was, perhaps you could say, as much Mosaism, the Mosaic Law, as it was Rabbinism, although it was a mixture of the two because you had the Pharisees and the oral traditions, but you also had the standing of the temple and, and the practices that were commanded under the Mosaic system. 
So they were in danger of, of, of giving up their professing in, professing, profession in Jesus and going back to the old religious tradition. Uh, and so the warning passages are addressed specifically to them. Now this is very applicable throughout the history of the church, the church age, and today, because you have people that leave religious systems and make a profession in Jesus. The Bible is, the New Testament, the epistles especially, are replete with uh, passages that address this type of thing. Professing believers. Jesus mentioned it, that there's going to be the wheat and the tares that grow up together. Wheat and tare looks very similar. The wheat is good, the tare is no good. Uh, and what Jesus said is don't try to separate those two because sometimes you will make a mistake. I will do the separating at my coming. So Jesus spoke to the issue. It's addressed in the epistles. It's addressed here, uh, but uniquely or specifically with Jewish believers in danger of going back. Hebrews is a great book. So we have the first warning passage in this book as we come to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. It starts out in verse 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. The word ought, translated ought in the uh, King James Version, is a much stronger word than we have in our English language today. You ought to do that. Well, you should do that. Um, you know, it's advisable that you do that, that type of understanding. The word, the word literally means you must do it. Um, we must give the more earnest, and there's that emphasis, earnest, not superficially, not as a professor, but you must give earnest heed to the things which we have heard. What we have heard, what they have heard, is chapter 1. And there are two things that come to the forefront in chapter 1. It starts out in the first three verses. And it, and it doesn't even mention the name of Jesus. It just mentions the Son. We won't see the name of Jesus in the book of Hebrews until chapter 2, verse 9. But it just presents to us the Son who is the anointed one of God. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And that's the three Old Testament offices, ancient Israel. They were anointed, God anointed individuals into those offices. The prophet was God's spokesman to the people. The priest was the people's representative to a holy God. And the king was God's appointed ruler over the nation of Israel. Human ruler. It was a theocracy. God was their ultimate ruler. There's no better way to start the book of Hebrews than it started Israel, the Jewish people, looking for a Messiah, their Messiah. And in the book of Hebrews, the Son is presented as the Messiah, who is the prophet, the priest, the king, the anointed one. The rest of the verses, let alone what we find in the first three verses as well, especially verse 2 and 3, talk about the Son being God himself, the Messiah being God. And he gives, the writer gives all kinds of quotes from the Jewish Bible. So when we start out in verse 
1 of chapter 2, therefore, in other words, as the result of what you have heard in chapter 1, you must give earnest heed to the things which you have heard, which you have learned, that the Son is the Messiah, and the Son is God himself. The Messiah is God. Lest at any time we should let them slip. In other words, that you might let those two very basic fundamental truths, realities, pass you by, slip by. It's kind of like the thought of a, a rudderless, an oarless uh, boat in the water that you have no control over and it just slips on by, just passes on by. Don't let these truths pass you by. And this is foundational for the whole book, what has been established for us in chapter 1. He, the Messiah, the Son is the Messiah, he's very God himself. Don't let it pass you by. <clears throat> Verse 2, we are told this. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast. Now the word spoken by angels is specifically referring to the Mosaic Covenant. Could include other times. But the Mosaic Covenant was delivered, was given by God to angels delivered to Moses. And in that sense, spoken by angels. And the Mosaic Law had blessings and cursings, and we talked about that a little bit last week. But he says, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, it was. The Mosaic Law was steadfast, was true, was right. And every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward or judgment. So every time someone broke the law, there would be a penalty for that lawbreaker because the law demanded it. And ultimately, God would exact that penalty for breaking the law. Now, he's, he's getting to the point, in the contrast, that's what we're going to see in the next couple of verses, with the Son. The Mosaic Law was steadfast from God, given by God, and if you would disobey that law, you would be punished for it. Well, where's he obviously going with this? Those professing believers, if you let Jesus slip by, the Son, we haven't identified him as Jesus yet, but he is Jesus. If you let him slip by in your life, you've only given lip service that he is the Messiah, the Christ, very God himself. And you don't give him heart service, you don't possess the Lord by truly in your heart accepting him, what do you think is going to happen to you if under the old law, Mosaic law, every disobedience met a sure judgment or reward, as the King James put it? Well, if you miss what the Son says and you miss the Son, how much greater is that? And I mentioned last week, this first uh, warning passage is really kind of um, mellow. <laughs> so, uh, Because as you get further on into some of these warning passages, it becomes a lot more 
pronounce the warning. Uh, the fourth warning passage, for example, in chapter 10 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, the, the world never considers that because they don't have any connection to God. I, I was saved when I was 27. We talked about saved at different ages. Um, and I won't mention the older people in here who got saved after I did. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Um, you know, even though I was searching for God for many years, he really wasn't a reality in my life. And I had been searching for God since my first, second semester, first year in college. I knew there was someone out there. But I, you know, you don't want to hear about my life before I got saved. Um, it was not the, I, I, I was not a choir boy. Um, now, Bob. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and, and God didn't enter into the fig, figuring of, of my life when I did things. I, you know, I, I just, I did things that I, I certainly don't do now. Um, unsaved people don't generally have God figure in what they do. And if they do, it's often misguided because they don't truly know the Lord. So if you miss the sun, the, the judgment is going to be severe. <clears throat> well, we're not going to look at all of this. Turn over to the, the back of the page. As we pick it up on, on verse 3. And here it really starts in the warning. He, he started the warning back in verse 2. Don't neglect. Don't, you, you must heed what you've learned. Don't let it slip by. That's the beginning of the warning. And it, it's strong only in the sense that it's um, forceful. You must earnestly heed what you've learned. Well, must is, this is not an option to consider. This is a command to be obeyed, in a sense. And, and earnest is, is you've got to give it all of your attention, not just a, a, a mouth testimony. So it, it, it's, it's, no, what's the word? It, it's, it's, it's very straightforward. It's very pronounced in that regard. Don't let it miss you. Don't let it escape you. Don't let it pass you by these very basic truths. Then in verse 3, how shall we escape? And Paul, Paul, not Paul, Paul, I don't believe Paul wrote this book, the writer of Hebrews, uh, is identifying with his recipients. The writer obviously is not in the same condition that the, of the people he's speaking to. He is speaking to Jewish people who have only professed the Lord but aren't truly saved. The writer is obviously Jewish, Again, who he is is only conjecture. Um, but he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now, we looked at this last week, and we looked at um, <clears throat> the concept, so great salvation, that phrase, and mentioned a number of things, six things. It's simple. It's free. It's universal, it's sufficient, it's priceless, it's eternal. So great is our salvation. 
and I said last week we could add so many things to it. Um, in the course of a conversation with someone, I, you know, I, I thought, you know, the seventh thing is we get a new body, <laughs> you know. The older we get, the more that becomes great, right? Right? Yeah. So great. You know, we, we put off this old body, we get a new body. All the aches and the pains and the broken bones and, and things that don't work like they should be working. And uh, the older you get, the more things you have that don't work like they should be. You know, the plumbing goes bad and the camera doesn't work like it should. Um, you know, the lens gets foggy. And, um, you know, and, and, and those, those, those joints haven't been lubricated in, in many a moon. And so they're very creaky, and uh, you get out of bed in the morning, and it just you just don't get out of bed like you did 40 years ago, um, where you wake up and you jump out of bed and you're off running. And uh, you know today, when you when you hit that the the back end of life, you know you kind of roll out of bed, you know stretch, and, you know and say, I know this whole body's going to get moving soon. You know, and, and, and so you, you know, enough of you here are old enough to know what I'm talking about. You know, Buzz is a young guy. Buzz doesn't know. He, you know, one of these days, it's, it's, but Buzz has got his own physical problems. <laughs> so, but you know what I'm talking about. And so, you know, so I, I certainly should add, you know, point number seven. Why, why, why is salvation so great salvation? We get a new body. That, that's the promise. And boy, am I looking forward to my body, my new body, just as you are. Anyway, um, in light of the greatness of salvation, how shall we escape? What's the escape that he's talking about, the context that he had ended verse um, 2 with? Punishment. The angels delivered to us the Mosaic law, the word of God, and if you broke that law, you would get a punishment, unquestionably, sure. How shall you escape if you neglect the sun? It's bad enough breaking the Mosaic law. That, and we've all done it. We've all disobeyed our parents. We, you know, if you think about it, we've broken the law over and over and over and over again. So we're sinners. But to know about the Son, understand what the Son has done, and reject the Son, even if you just do it passively, by letting him slip by, how can you escape, is, is the argument. You can't escape. And ultimately, again, one of the warning passages, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Then the end of verse 3, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Now, this is very important, and as we move on um, into, into the next page, <clears throat> first began to be spoken by the Lord, but was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. It's very important that last phrase, one might think, well, why, you know, why do we have here what we're going to ultimately look at, the confirmation of, uh, of the Word of God? 
and God confirming his messengers. Well, one of the arguments could be, and hey, you know, this is not important. You know, there's a saying in the Jewish world that from Moses to Moses, there's none greater than Moses. Now, what they're talking about is Moses the lawgiver to Moses Maimonides, who was a brilliant man in the 12th century or so, who was uh, a doctor and a writer and uh, put together the uh, 13 articles of Jewish faith, uh, the closest thing that you will find to a Jewish doctrinal statement from Moses to Moses. And so you have from roughly 14, 1500 years or so, uh, prior to the time of Jesus until, well, 1200 years roughly after the time of Jesus, almost covering three millennia from Moses to Moses, a period of roughly th almost three, 2700, but 3000 years from Moses to Moses, there's none greater than Moses. Wait a second. How about the sun? Well, unbelieving Jewish people today don't believe in the sun. And so how shall we escape? So what is happening here is God is going to confirm what he's done all the way through history. How do we know when something is from God or not? How do we know a word is from God or is not from God? Well, that's what he's dealing with here. Because he wants to drive home to these hearers, these professing believers, that what you've heard is very much from the mouth of God. This is God's word. It was his spokesman that gave it, but understand that this is God's revelation. So this great salvation, which at the first And the salvation, by the way, is through the Son. If you remember back in Hebrews chapter 1, and we don't have it here, but if you have your Bibles open, in verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, but the last phrase of verse 3, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He, the Son, Jesus, by himself, you weren't part of it, the priesthood wasn't part of it, no religious law was part of it whatsoever. He, by himself, had purged our sins. And then the finality of that sacrifice is captured in the phrase, he sat down. The Old Testament priesthood, when they were ministering in the temple or the tabernacle before that, and went into the holy place and the holy of holies for the high priest, there were no seats. They were always standing. They were always moving because their work was never completed, never finished, never done. So the phrase, he sat down, is just pregnant, loaded with meaning. It is finished. It is complete. It is done. I have accomplished that which the entire Uh, Levitical priesthood couldn't do. I finished it. And, and that will be gotten into in, in much detail uh, in chapter 5 and 6 and 7 of uh, Hebrews. Even in a sense 8, 9, and 10. But we'll, that, that's from another vantage point uh, as it gets 
into it. So he's confirming the word. God is confirming this word to them. So at the top of page three of your notes, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. Through his words, Jesus communicated our need for salvation through him. John 3, 16, for example, through 18. Uh, there's, there's so much here. Um, I didn't put down all the verses, but it, you're all familiar with John chapter 3, and uh, I would presume most of us, if not all of us, could quote John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten Son, uh, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. Well, in verses 17 and 18, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is Jesus talking, speaking of the salvation that he would provide after he had talked to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that I have come and died for the sins of the world. Jesus spoke about this salvation as the son that Hebrews speaks about. But it was confirmed, the next thought in verse 3, confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Now, that's very key. You had to be a contemporary of that person, in this case Jesus, that God would confirm unto not only these people, but also ultimately everybody, that what was being spoken is actually the Word of God. It was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Now, we're going to look at this and, and what all of this means in, uh, for, for, for Revelation, Scripture. The followers of Jesus who personally heard Jesus confirmed our need of salvation through Jesus. Acts 4, 12, for example. There's, there's none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. And I didn't read all these uh, verses in Acts 4. But that is the name given under heaven, Jesus, whereby we must be saved. There's no other name. The only one who can save us is Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody else can. There's no other name. And God confirmed that truth by them, or through them, that heard him. Now, those that heard him, specifically who he's speaking about is the apostles. Now, there were a lot of people who heard Jesus, right? Including unbelievers. Pharisees, Sadducees, lay people. Many who never came to the Lord. There were those who heard him who came to the Lord. Jew and Gentile, there was that um, Gentile woman who came from the coast and knew that or heard that of what Jesus was doing. She recognized that Jesus was God. She recognized that he was the son of David, was the promised Messiah of Israel. And uh, Jesus commended her, if you remember that 
story in the gospel said, I have never found as the, the type of faith that you have shared uh, right now in all of Israel. Now, when we ultimately get to Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to look further at that entire episode of that woman, this Gentile woman in, who Jesus commended. So in all of Israel, I've never met anybody who had the faith that you had. Wouldn't you like Jesus to say that about you? Well, here's this, and remember, remember how, the, how the, the Jewish followers of Jesus treated this woman? You're a Gentile dog. Get away. You know, you're a dog. And dogs don't eat at the table. Pardons to, uh, what's his name? Sebastian, that's right, he's named after the composer. They at best get the crumbs from the table, and you're just a Gentile dog. I mean, this is the followers of Jesus at the time. Well, anyway, we will look at that in more detail when we get to chapter 12, and that will be probably, oh, I'm guessing our sixth or seventh month in heaven. But anyway, <laughs> or longer. Who knows? I don't know. Uh, but was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Those were the apostles. They weren't just anybody who heard him. God set aside unique people to confirm his word. And in this case, they were the apostles that would confirm the word that the Lord spoke. Who wrote the Gospels? The apostles. Matthew? Mark? John? Luke, John. Yeah, somebody said Luke. That's why. You know, the followers, the apostles. Now, look at verse 4. And this is where we're going to dive into it a little bit more in depth. God also bearing them witness. Now, who is the them? The apostles. Remember, God was going to confer, uh, confirm uh, the word that was spoken that uh, was given by the Lord in this particular case uh, unto us by those that heard him, God bearing them, the apostles, witness. How would he confirm the word through the apostles? He tells us. With signs? And wonders, different kinds of miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So God would bear witness that this word that you've heard, the Son ultimately is the Savior, God himself, the Messiah, would... would, would uh, bear witness to that being correct, being true, by the use of the miraculous. Miracles, signs, wonders, which God would give according to his will to bear witness to this truth. Now, the first point, God also bearing them witness. Them is the same group as the previous verse, speaking of the apostles. Those who heard him, which would be the apostles who were with him. He would do it 
with signs and wonders and different types of miracles. That's how he would, God would, authenticate their message with this type of thing. Now, Jesus' ministry itself was approved by miracles. Look at John chapter 10 and verse 38, or let me read it for you. Because God is going to authenticate the message of the apostles who bore the witness of the Lord and what he said as true in the same type of way that Jesus' ministry was uh, authenticated by God. 1038, Jesus here speaking to unbelieving Jews says, Verse 38, but if, but if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So you won't accept me as the Messiah. You're rejecting me as your Messiah. And if you want to do that, basically go ahead and do that. But though you believe not in me, believe my works. All of the miracles that he did, and he did multitude of miracles. They were given by the Father to authenticate who Jesus was, that he was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. Miracles accompanied Jesus' life. Look at in Acts chapter 2, in verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man of approved of God among you, how? By miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. And so, listen up, ye people of Israel. Jesus of Nazareth, a man that was approved by God through miracles that he enabled him to do, that authenticated that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be, and God approved Jesus by the use of miracles and signs and wonders. So you have this authenticating work of God in the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, Miracles, signs, wonders, showing that he was the promised one of Israel, the one who, would, who was promised and would come and did come. Now, the apostles' ministry would be uh, approved in the same way, by miracles. Look at Mark 16. Go back to the Gospel of Mark. In verses 19 and 20. Now I got there. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, after Jesus had spoken unto them, this would be his followers, his apostles, 
After the Lord had spoken unto them, he, Jesus, was received up into heaven, sat on the right, and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Just as God affirmed, authenticated Jesus and his preaching, teaching through miracles that he allowed Jesus to do, so God would confirm the word of the apostles. Who wrote the New Testament? Apostles. He confirmed the word that they gave that this word is from God. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and the rest of the New Testament by the use of miracles. We see the same thing if we would turn to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, verse 3. Long time, therefore, abode they speaking boldly in the Lord. This would be Paul, Paul and Barnabas, but mostly primarily led by Paul. And again, uh, in chapter 14, verse 3, Long time, therefore, abode they, Paul and Barnabas, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace. So they talked about the Word of God. They talked about the grace of God. They talked about the Word that had been revealed, the truth of the Word of God. Then look at the next phrase. And granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. The Lord granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. These apostles, these followers of the Lord, to authenticate the message, the word of God that they were delivering hadn't been written down yet. It's not scripturated and scripturated at this point. Now, the apostles' ministry approved by miracles. The next phrase in verse 4, and gifts of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now, gifts are such a contentious issue within the Christian world. Uh, especially, oh, my guess is it would probably sometime in the 70s when the charismatic movement was born. The charismatic movement was probably born in the, in the 50s, but it really started to build, worked its way into the mainstream Christianity probably in the 60s and the 70s and became extremely contentious. I wasn't saved until 1976, and, and the question of tongues, especially at that time, was a very contentious uh, issue among Christians. You know, is this a gift of God? Is it not a gift of God? You know, if it's not of God, where's it coming from? Uh, and uh, it, there, were, there, there have been books written on it. Um, tongues are still spoken today and looked at by a large part of Christendom uh, as a gift from God. Uh, it's not the major point in the uh, spiritual arena in our world today, although it is still part of it, not like it was. 
back in the uh, 70s for sure in the early 80s. Uh, the battleground has moved in, in many ways to other forums, uh, such as the deity of Christ and the inspiration of Scripture and, and, and things like that. But God is the gifter. He gives gifts according to your will? No. His own will. You know, one, one of the big things in the charismatic movement through the years was, and still is in some portions of it, is, you know, pray that you will get the gift of tongues. Um, and, you know, some even went to the point that if you don't have the gift of tongues, for example, then, then you're probably not saved. You certainly not don't have the Spirit of God because the sign of the Holy Spirit in your life is the gift of tongues. Some, not all, some would say. It was a big issue. Well, the Bible is very clear. Gifts are sovereignly bestowed by God. We don't have a choice in what gift we get. God gives each one of us at least one gift. Look, for example, at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is not so much speaking about tongues, but about, and it's not really even so much talking about spiritual, uh, about gifts. What it's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is spirituality, being spiritual. We're not going to cover this whole chapter, but first look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Now, Paul writes to the Corinthian church concerning spiritual gifts. Now, you are well aware that the Corinthian church at this time was the model church of the first century, right? I mean, every church wanted to be like the Corinthian church, correct? They were stellar in spirituality and holiness and love, right? Well, I'm glad you've read 1 Corinthians. No, they were, uh, they were on the bottom of the totem pole, as it were. And the whole book of 1 Corinthians is a rebuke. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. They were doing so much stuff wrong. And every chapter, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, up to this point, it's correcting an error. Correcting uh, abuse. Paul is straightening them out. And he's straightening them out. And we're not, we're not going to spend a lot of... <laughs> I keep on saying that. But go back to chapter uh, 1 of 1 Corinthians. So I want you to notice something in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is writing back to the church of Corinth. And he says in verse 11... For it had been declared unto me, Paul says, of you, my brethren. I have been told about what's happening in this church at Corinth. By them which are of the house of Chloe. So members of the house of Chloe had communicated to Paul about the issues at Corinth. 
Paul is then writing back to the church to straighten out the issues. And what the house of Chloe had communicated was all the problems. I had been communicated by the members of the house of Chloe that there are contentions among you and the problems in 2 and 3 and 4 and chapter 5 and on. And Paul is now writing back to straighten them out. Go to chapter 12. And Paul starts out this way. Now, I've dealt with all these other things. I've, I've, I've dealt with marriage and sexual immorality and people who have questioned and doubted my apostleship and brethren taking brethren to, to secular courts for judgment and, and the abuse of the Lord's Supper and um, uh, the contentions. I've, I've covered all of this stuff. Now, concerning spirituality. Now, I have the King James. And the way the King James reads is now concerning spiritual gifts. My guess is that your version, whatever version it might be, perhaps has gifts as well. Yes? No? Yeah. But, hopefully, gifts is italicized. You know why? It's not in the Greek. It's not in the original. What Paul is saying is now concerning spirituality. I want you to be spiritual. Now, how is our spirituality ultimately manifested? Through the use of the gift or gifts God has given to us. And that's why the, the thought gifts is italicized there. Because our spirituality is manifested through the gifts that God has given to us. We're going to look at, at shortly that God alone, we're not going to go through this whole chapter, we don't have time, um, but God alone has decided which gifts that we get. But he's dealing with being spiritual here. Now concerning being spiritual, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant of what truth is. You know that you were Gentiles carried away onto dumb idols, even as you were led. You were, you were just embracing false religion, dumb idols that carried you away in all kinds of uh, wrong endeavors. And then he says in verse 3, Wherefore, I give you to understand. I want you to understand something. Corinthians, same for us. Now, how did Paul hear about this again? Yeah, they had communicated by letter. We, we, we ascertained that from another portion of, of Corinthians. So I want you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. Now, obviously, what was happening in the church of Corinth? that the house of Chloe had, had, was very concerned about, they wrote to Paul and they said, Paul, we don't understand. Here we have somebody standing up in the church claiming 
to be speaking by the Spirit of God. But he called Jesus accursed. How can that be? You see it? Paul writes back, I want you to understand something. No man speaking by the Spirit of God would call Jesus accursed. So what is happening there is not of God. Somebody claiming to be speaking by the Spirit of God and yet cursing Jesus, calling him accursed. And then he says in the last part of verse 3, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Spirit. So I want you to understand a couple of things, Paul says. First off, nobody can stand up claiming to be speaking by the Spirit of God and call Jesus accursed. It doesn't happen, will not happen. The Spirit of God will not do that. This one is not speaking by the Spirit of God. Secondly, I want you to understand that no man can say that Jesus is their Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, second thing first. If you went down, I don't know where the... Uh, the down and outers, the, uh, uh, the wine-bibbers of Raleigh hang out. But if you went down and found them at midnight at one or two in the morning and found one of these wine-bibbers lying in the gutter, obviously drunk. It's more square. Four square. More you, square. Okay, more square. There's, a, there's one who speaks from me that knows about it. The husband. Now you're passing it off on your husband. <laughs> no explanation needed. If we went down to Moore Square at midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning and you found somebody lying in the gutter drunk and you said to that person, I will give you $10. All you have to do is say that Jesus is my Lord. What do you think that person is going to do? Just say it. And you're going to be out $10. Now, is he saying that by the Spirit of God? No. Yeah, by, by another spirit, is he saying it. Uh, not the Spirit of God. So, and, and what Paul is, he's trying to, he's trying to correct the, the abuse that's going on. I remember, and it's not the same type of thing, but uh, many, many years ago, a Jewish believer, he actually happened to be a police officer. I, one thing I remember about him and his wife had left the congregation that they were in, which believed very much in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they attended, and, and it was regular at this congregation that somebody would get a message from God and stand up, speak in tongues. Somebody would stand up after that and interpret it and God had a message, and so on. Well, they came to the office where I was working, and they said, we had to leave. And, and I wasn't the only one there. There was two or three of us. And so why? Tell us the story. Well, we were there at the last 
or assembly a week ago, whenever it was, and this woman stood up and claimed that the Spirit of God had given her a message, and she gave this message for the whole congregation in this unknown language, tongue. And then somebody stood up in the congregation and said, I have the interpretation of that tongue. And it was something like, God loves you, and he's warning you that he's coming soon, and you need to be ready for his coming. And it was a good admonition. And as they told us the story, she said, and I turned to my husband and said, we need to leave right now. They left. I said, well, why did you leave right now? Why, why was it so urgent? And she said, she claimed to be speaking by the Spirit of God. And this other one claimed to be getting the interpretation by the Spirit of God. But I can tell you that they both were not getting what they got from the Spirit of God. Because the language she spoke was not an unknown tongue. This woman happened to be from, I think, Eastern Europe. And her native tongue, language, was Urdu. Anybody here ever heard Urdu? No, I think it's from Eastern Europe, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, regardless. She said, that was my native tongue. She was speaking in Urdu. And, she, and what was the interpretation was not at all what she was saying. What she was saying was, and, and if you listen to tongues, and they've been recorded and studies have been done, they're repetitious. And what she was saying was, you are fools. You are all fools for doing this and believing this. You are fools. And she said, we got to leave. Claiming to be speaking by the Spirit of God. Was it the Spirit of God? No. It's another spirit. It's what it's saying. And she wasn't cursing Jesus. She was mocking in the Urdu language that this woman happened to know. You know, this, I, I guess, you know, this is a congregation of two to three hundred people. And that demon, I guess, didn't know that this woman was from Urdu. I guess they didn't do any background checks um, in all of this. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. Somebody claiming to be speaking by the Spirit of God cursing Jesus. Uh-uh. Can't happen. And the only one who can truly say that Jesus is Lord is someone who is, truly has the Spirit of God. And if you truly have the Spirit of God, you will not curse Jesus and claim to be speaking by the Spirit of God. And then he goes on, the writer Paul, to tell about the gifts here and the diversities of gifts. But notice uh, in here, all the time. Look at, look at verse 11. But all these, and what is he talking about? The gifts. Go back to verse 4. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administrations, the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but the same God.
works all in all. What you have in verses 4, 5, and 6 is the triunity of God. You have the Holy Spirit, the Lord, Jesus, and the Father. They will not contradict themselves. They work in unison. They work together. So you have diversities of gifts, yes, but only the, everybody has the same Holy Spirit who's saved. You have differences of ministration and how you minister those gifts in different ways. Some people more gifted, if you will, than others, but we all have the same Lord, Jesus. That that's, doesn't change. That's no different. And, and there are differences of operations and how we operate, but we all have the same God who works in all of us. We're, they work together. In other words, the Spirit of God will not contradict the Lord. The Lord will not contradict the Spirit of God, and so on. And so, he's and so he goes down. Uh, then in um, uh, verse 7, even, we should pick up. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit others, with all, outside, others. But then going, and, and he talks about the gifts that are given. And then in verse 11, but all these work at that one and the self-same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he, the Spirit of God, wills. God gives the gifts. Look at verse 18. But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. God puts us in his body with that particular gift as it pleases him. You don't have a choice in the matter. You have been gifted by God if you're saved, and you are to use that gift to his glory. God, God didn't put all the gifts on a shelf and say, now that you're saved, go pick one out. He didn't do that. What he did was give you at least one gift, and you are to turn around and use that gift to his glory. Look at, um, what is it, verse 25, what's the, the last one here in verse 28? Uh, of this chapter, and God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governance, diversities of tongues. Um, God has set them in the church as he desires, as he wills. God chose his apostles. God chose his pastors today. God chose his teachers today. God chose his helpers today. If that's where you're gifted, it's because God has chosen you and given you that gift. Nobody comes lacking. And, and the whole pur purpose of 1 Corinthians 12 is to straighten out the Corinthians. Everybody is important in the body. Uh, and he talks about that, but God gives the gift. And if you want to be spiritual, you are going to use the gift that God gives you. That's what he's talking about. And you don't have a choice in that. And God chose the apostles and gave them gifts to use. Now, the gifts of the Holy Spirit here. Talking about Hebrews now. Back in Hebrews chapter 2. Remember, and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, back in your sheet. The gifts of the Holy Spirit here are unique. They're miraculous sign gifts. 
given to the apostles to authenticate their ministry. They were bringing revelation. They were bringing new revelation, the Word of God. And these were unique, miraculous sign gifts given to the apostles to authenticate their ministry. There are four identifiable sign gifts, miraculous sign gifts, that we can see. Healing, miracles, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. All of them were relegated to the apostolic age. They were sign gifts to authenticate that ministry of the apostles and the word that was given. Now look at 1 Corinthians 14, 21 and 22. Um, well, actually, before we go down there, let's do point number one. That's important. They were unique to the apostles. And we don't want to pass this along. Go, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Look in verse 12. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you. How? In all patience, but in signs and wonders and miracles, mighty deeds. The signs of an apostle. Now just think with me. If there are authenticating, unique, miraculous gifts, authenticating the ministry of the apostles, they then must be unique to whom? The apostles, because they're authenticating the ministry of the apostles. Truly signs of the apostles. So there are unique signs that if anybody could do at any time during the history of the church, what would make these unique or uniquely signs of an apostle? They wouldn't. They wouldn't be uniquely signs of an apostle. There has to be a unique set of gifts that authenticate them that heard him, the apostle heard him, Jesus, the son, to authenticate their ministry as apostles. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you. In the same way that Hebrews talks about, we are told in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, in signs and wonders and miracles. Signs of an apostle. So for people to come along at any time in the church age and say that they have got the same gift as the apostles, one of two things. They thus then must be an apostle. Or they're mistaken. I'll be nice about it. Pardon? Don't stand too close to them. They're mistaken. Now, consider 
Acts chapter 2 and verses 7 and 14. Do you see it there? Truly the signs of an apostle. Again, if you're an apostle and there's signs of an apostle, there has to be unique signs that only apostles would have. Miracles and wonders, that type of thing. But look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 in verse 7 and verse 14. Now what's happening in Acts chapter 2? Let's preface this first. Pentecost. Spirit of God comes. How many were in that upper room? Remember? 120. Did all of them speak in tongues? No. Some of you were honest. And said, I don't know. And that, you know. The general thinking is they all spoke in tongues. Spirit of God. How many of them received the Spirit of God? All of them received the Spirit of God. Look at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind that filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them, all of them, appeared unto them, cloven tongues like as a fire, sat upon each of them, and they were all, all 120, filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Is this saying they all spoke in tongues? No. Some of them spoke in tongues. As the Spirit gave them that gift. Now, who did the Spirit give that utterance, that gift of tongues, to? Well, we'll pick it up in verse 5. We'll go down to verse 11. There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now then, with, then when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded. Not confused, were confounded. It's a difference between being confounded and confused. Confounded is amazed. How did this happen? Confused is I don't understand. They weren't confused, they were confounded. They were confounded. Why? Because that every man heard them speak in his own language. That's why they were confounded. How could These are illiterate, not totally, they weren't illiterate, they were farmers, they were fishermen. They were fishermen. And how do we hear them speak in our own language? And by the way, you know what that Greek word there is for language? Dialectos. See, earlier in the passage, in verse 4, they began to speak with other tongues, that's glossa, that's just the word for languages. Tongues. And tongues in, in classical Greek was used three different ways. It could be a, a figure of a tongue, like it was tongues of fire. It wasn't an actual fire. It was a figure of a, a picture. It was tongues shaped like fire, um, or fire shaped like a tongue, maybe the way to put it, but not real fire. It can be the organ in your mouth, the tongue, or it can be your, your language, Russian, French, German. English, that's your tongue. What's your native tongue? English, yes. Thank God we all speak English here. Um, although I wish my native tongue was Hebrew. But anyway, I'm not going to go down that road. That's glossa in verse 7. Verse 6. 
They were astounded. They were confounded. We heard every man speak on our own dialect. See, this is what the amazing thing of Pentecost was not only that they spoke in the language, in the language, the tongue of the hearer, French, German, what they spoke in their dialect. How many dialects do we have in our country? Bunches. If you're from Boston, you 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 park the car. You know, we park the car. You know, but if you're from uh, wherever, you know, we got a southern drawl and we got this and that and so on. You can learn a language in a country, but you can't learn the dialect usually unless you grow up in that culture. They were not only speaking that language, they were speaking the dialect. We're amazed. We're con- How can they do that? It's from God. Then in verse 7, they were all amazed. They were marveling, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Whoa. Of the 120 people, there were people from Judah. There were people from Galilee. Who were the only ones speaking in tongues? Galileans. Galileans. By the way, where were all the apostles from? Thank you. Then in verse 8, verse Verse 8, how hear we every man, not mankind, man, in our own tongue. The people that God gave utterance to on the day of Pentecost to speak in a foreign dialect language were only men from Galilee. You don't have to be a brain surgeon to understand who these men were. They were the apostles. And what do we have? Look at verse 14. Now, we're not going to look at 12 and 13. They were amazed, others mocking. But look at verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the 11, whoa, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Peter, And the eleven spoke in languages. Who do you think those twelve were? They're from Galilee. They're only men. How many apostles were there? Twelve. The ones that God gave utterance to on Pentecost were only the apostles. Only the apostles spoke in languages, miraculously. Now we're going to look at why they were given that gift. It was authenticating gift of their message. And what ended up happening? There were people in Jerusalem from all over the known world. And it tells us where they're from. You go back to verse 9. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Mesopotamians uh, dwell in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya about Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Cretes and Arabians. How then do we hear them speak in our tongues? So you had the twelve standing up and Peter was speaking in English, thank God. That's why we have the King James English he was speaking in. Isn't that nice? No, I'm just kidding there. I hope you understand. I don't know what. Peter could have been speaking in the Hebrew. He could have been just speaking because there are a lot of Hebrew speakers there. 
but you had the 11. And another one was in another corner giving the same message that Peter was given in Cretan or in, um, in, in Arab. Is that the word? I'm, in, in Arabic. Thank you. Arabic. Uh, another one. Now, and if you, if, if you only spoke Arabic, or if you were only a, a Christian, you know, this is pre-Star Wars, by the way. Uh, but if you were pre, if you only spoke in Christian and you had these 11, 12 people standing up and you were hearing this amazing message, which group would you go to to listen? Would you go to the group that spoke Arabic when you didn't know Arabic? No. You go to the Christian or the Hebrew. Or, and, and it was the apostles that spoke in their languages. Gifts of the apostles, uniquely. They are the only ones, the men who spoke in tongues at Pentecost. Now, we're not going to look at this in, in, in lots of detail, although we've already started, I guess. You know, but um, Anyway, look at Ephesians chapter 2. Oh, man, it's already 8.30. We've got to finish that. I didn't want to get in this last week because... I didn't want to do it in 15, 20 minutes. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. This is so, but this all is so important. Gifts of the apostles, uniquely to the apostles. Now look at Ephesians chapter 2. 19 through 22. Now therefore... You are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Gentiles are on the same footing in Christ as Jews in Christ. You're no longer strangers and foreigners. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together grows onto a holy temple in the Lord. The apostles and prophets are the foundation of the building. They were in the first of the church. They're the foundation. When you build a building that has multiple stories, how many times do you lay the foundation? Once. Then the second floor, then the third floor, then the fourth floor, and so on. You never relay the foundation. The church is a building. We are 2,000 years removed from the foundation. Who is part of the foundation? The apostles. And when the second floor was added, and the third floor, and the fourth floor, and so on, you no longer had the found. you still had the foundation which the building was built on, but the apostles are at the foundation, not on the fourth floor or the 20th floor. Nobody can claim to be an apostle of the Lord today because the apostleship, the gift of apostleship, was a foundational gift to the church to get it established. And so when the church built and grew, the gifts that were given uniquely to the apostles obviously were no longer needed. And they passed off the scene with the, with the apostles who ultimately died. Now, one other thing I want us to consider, hopefully briefly, that's impossible. 
Point number two. The sign gift of tongues. It is a sign gift. It's not normal. It is not a normal operative gift for the church. Tongues is a sign gift uniquely given to the apostles. And the only one who spoke in tongues at Pentecost were apostles. Look what it says. And we could consider chapter, uh, the, the other two portions of, um, of Acts where, where tongues were spoken. We're not going to do it now. But anyway, tongues are a gift, but it's a sign gift. And it confirmed the ministry of the apostles among unbelievers as a sign of coming judgment. Look at 1 Corinthians 14 in verse 22. First Corinthians 14. The only place in the Bible that we find the explanation of the purpose of tongues is here. Look at 1 Corinthians 14:22. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but them to them that believe not. So tongues are for whom? A sign for whom? Unbelievers. Prophesying serves not for them that believes not, but for them which believes. Teaching, proclaiming the truth for believers. But tongues are a sign gift for unbelievers. And there's a unique group of unbelievers in focus here. Look at verse 23. Uh, I'm sorry, not 23, but going back to verse 21, and, and I should have started in 21, um, and it's on your notes as well. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord, wherefore tongues are for a sign. What Paul is doing, he is quoting here from Isaiah 28. 5 through 13. We're not going to turn back there. But what that's speaking of, it's a quote pulled out of there, is that Paul, not Paul, but Isaiah back there is telling Israel, the unbelievers, that judgment is coming from God. And that judgment is going to come in the form of a nation that speaks another language. That particular judgment that God would use would be Assyria against Israel. And God would speak to them with a people of another language that they wouldn't understand. He's going to use Assyria to judge Israel. So when we see this, there are some basic stipulations for the use of the tongues gift. Will I speak on to this people? Point number one, Jews have to be present. If tongues are to be used biblically, Jewish people have to be present. They always were in the three incidences of Acts. Secondly, tongues were for a sign to unbelievers. Tongues are for a sign to them that believe not. Turn your paper over. Thirdly, tongues is a sign of impending judgment for Israel. That's why Jewish people had to be present. 
unbelieving Jewish people always had to be present. Were there unbelieving Jewish people at Pentecost? Yeah. Some of them mocked. They're drunk. So it was a sign of Im impending judgment for Israel. We'll find it in Jeremiah 5. We'll find it in De Deuteronomy 28. Jesus had prophesied that the temple would be destroyed as a judgment upon Israel for rejecting him, Luke 19, 41 through 44. Tongues at Pentecost, used by the apostles, the twelve stood up and speak, was intended as a sign for unbelieving Israel that coming judgment was happening. When did that judgment ultimately take place for Israel, who had rejected the Messiah? 70 A.D. What happened in 70 A.D.? The Romans came in. God used a people of another tongue, the Romans, to destroy Jerusalem. You find no mention in the Bible after 70 AD. All mentions of the use of tongues in the Bible is prior to 70 AD. Because tongues are a sign gift to unbelieving Jews through the apostles of judgment coming. When judgment came in 70 AD, the purpose of that sign gift was no longer. Because judgment had now occurred, and you find no incident in the Bible of speaking in tongues after 70 A.D. So tongues is a sign gift, but uniquely as a sign of judgment to Israel for rejecting their Messiah. The other miracles were signs of the apostles to authenticate that the word that they were giving were actually from God. The apostles were foundational to the church. There are no longer apostles. No longer apostles, no longer apostolic gifts because they were truly gifts of the apostle. Either authenticating the word of God or as a sign gift to unbelieving Israel that judgment was coming. When judgment came, tongues were no longer needed. When the apostles died out, the foundation of the church had been laid, and there's no longer apostles, there's no longer sign gifts. So what God is saying in Hebrews chapter 2 and 3 and 4, I have confirmed my word through miracles and signs and wonders to authenticate that what they are telling you is from me, from God. Listen up. Don't let it pass you by. Because how shall you escape if you neglect, if you refuse? And it's not even in a sense actively. It's, it's just, I'm going back to the Mosaic Law. God gave us a temple. God gave us a priesthood. God gave us the sacrifices. Why is that not still good for us? I'm going back to that. Well, that's what Hebrews is about. But you have a much stronger argument to make that it's better. you can go back to Mosaism than to come out of Catholicism. Or, or Islam, or, or anything like that, and say, I'm going back to that. Those were never founded by God. At least the temple was, and the priesthood. But if they go back, the warning is, you are facing judgment, and you cannot escape.
Definitely. Yes. 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 Definitely written before the temple destroyed. We don't know the writer of it. A lot of people think it was Paul who would be an apostle, but we don't know. Now. So. So, spoken unto us by them that heard him, which is a possibility too. So, now. I put in the box here, Dan, box here Daniel Arta, uh, Wallace has an article worth reading on the purpose of sign gifts. Uh, he develops two theses. Thesis one, to the extent that we see discontinuity. See, the, the question of, among sign gifts and gifts is discontinuity or continuity. In other words, discontinuity is, is discontinued. Continuity is it continues through the church. So his thesis is to the extent that we see that it has discontinued, discontinuity between the first century and the 20th century in terms of the sign gifts, to that extent we are cessationists, meaning the miraculous gifts ceased. We get gifts, but not the miraculous gifts that are meant only for the apostles. There are gifts that God gives us. Thesis two. The more we see discontinuity, the more we affirm that the purpose of the sign gifts was authentication rather than a display of normative Christianity. He goes into more detail in his article. The more we see the discontinuity, it affirms what we understand that the purpose of the sign gifts was authentication of the ministry of the apostles confirming the word of God and it is not normative for the church. His conclusion was this. Continuity or discontinuity? In several major ways, there is discontinuity between the first century and the 20th century as far as the sign gifts are concerned. This certainly raises questions about the legitimacy of such gifts today. We have not even addressed the historical evidence that after the first century, those who have practiced the sign gifts have almost always been on the fringes of orthodoxy. From the second century until the beginning of the 20th century, early 1900s, such manifestations were almost unheard of in orthodox circles, Bible-believing fundamental circles. Yet God somehow was able to bring about great revivals, not to mention the Reformation, without such gifts taking center stage. How is that possible? If they, sign gifts, are normative expressions of the Christian faith. You know, talking about why is this revival in sign gifts taking place is a whole other subject. So let me just narrow it down to one or two sentences. In the last days, Satan will deceive the world through the use of sign gifts. Supernatural miracles. Gifts of the apostle. God confirmed them and their word that he had gotten, they had gotten from him through miracles and signs and wonders. Tongues uniquely being a sign gift to unbelieving Jews that destruction was coming. Again, the only place in the scripture giving us the um, reason of the purpose for tongues 
1 Corinthians 14, 21, and 22 for unbelieving Jews. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the word of God. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.